This is a Rooster Teeth production. In 1946, a series of brutal attacks over the course of three months left a small town in Texas paralyzed with fear. The assailant was never captured. Today, we discuss the disturbing case of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. This is Red Web. We have another classic true crime mystery right here in our own uh, home state, I guess not home state, but the state that we're in right now, yeah. te- uh, Texas. <laughs> uh, I'm Trevor Collins. That's Alfredo Diaz. What What do you got for your gut check today, Fred? Something tells me this is going to be pretty brutal. Mm. I was I was talking with Christian earlier, and he was like, "Yeah, this one, this one might be a little brutal." And I was like, "Oh, okay." And then you hit me with the "This was never solved." So in my mind, I'm thinking this is going to be a real intense one because. I'm getting hit with like this is a this one's a doozy and then from the other side a hey this wasn't solved. So to me I feel like the meat's going to be in the shock factor here. It's definitely graphic. There's some graphic details that we're not going to go super into right like wound locations. Uh there's there's some sexual abuse that happened in, or sexual violence I should say that happened in some of these cases. Those kind of details we're going to leave out to the side, but we will still kind of go into the nitty gritty of what happened at each of these attacks. Uh, Christian, by the way, just in case this is your first episode listening, he's one of our producers for the show, uh, one of our researchers. And uh, but yeah, this this is an interesting one. And I encourage you to stick to the end because it's technically unsolved. But I think that there is um, it's one of those ones where Fredo, I feel like we've got it, you know. Oh, okay. So maybe like some really strong suspects. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll see. I would love to get your thoughts on it at the end because we'll dive in there. But what we're going to do is we're going to break down the handful of attacks that happened uh, during the spread of these so-called moonlight murders here in Texarkana. Then we'll go, as always, into the investigation, followed by the key suspects that have come out from that. It's also worth noting one thing before we get into this is during this time period, the 1940s, Texarkana was no stranger to criminal activity. There was a lot going on, whether it's burglaries or violent crimes or what have you. So there is groundwork here to kind of obfuscate the criminal activities at first and blur the lines as to like, was this a serial murderer or was this whatever? Another thing here is in addition to the kind of ongoing criminal behavior around the Texarkana area, this particular series of attacks was eventually figured out to be like related to each other. And a lot of these uh, happened near lovers lanes, right? There's there's various roads around the world. They tend to be referred to as lovers lanes where people go park the car, make out and do their thing. I don't know if that's currently a thing anymore. I don't know. People Netflix and chill, right? But, you know. Yeah. So my my thought there was, uh, I mean, like I grew, I grew up in a place that was like very crime heavy ghetto of like San Francisco. Sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, I totally get that. We're just like, oh, is this like a string of, you know what I mean? Um, is this all connected or it's just everyday life? You know what I mean? Like, um, so I totally, I totally get that. But now that you drop that little bit of information that it seems to be couples in this like, like lover lane type thing, like, right. That seems more of a, to me, like, okay, this is like a, a serial killer type thing in the sense it's just because like, there's so much like specific 
uh, specificities I, I mean, something like that right there's there's an mo it's so specific right in terms of the lo- the, the location there's an mo yeah it just feels like okay couples in this area and then on top mm-hmm. of that it just seems like okay these are obviously murderers and they're you know they have a, that mo they're not out here breaking in stealing tvs or anything like that like right yeah they have one specific thing that they're really into Right. So you start to figure out maybe there's a jilted lover play at hand. Like there's something there's something here. Now, obviously, this is kind of forecasting what's coming. But since we all know that this is part of a series of attacks, I wanted to kind of lay down some of that consistency for you. But you have to remember at the time people are going, there's a lot of things going on. So that kind of begins the mystery on a, on a bad foot. And that's probably why we have a mystery is because people really didn't start looking into this until a little bit too late, as it were. But The first attack happened earlier in the year, in uh, February of 1946, the 22nd to be exact. This featured Jimmy Hollis, who was 24, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, who was 19. They were parked in a secluded corner just off Richmond Road in Texarkana. While in their car, they were approached by a man who was wearing a white cloth mask. Definitely not something you want to see in the middle of the night. No. Yeah, it is presumed that the mask was a pillowcase with eye holes, and he appeared at the car window on the driver's side and shined a light into their eyes so they couldn't really see who it was or get any other distinguishing features. He then shoved a gun at the couple and ordered them out of the car. Now, upon exiting the vehicle, he pistol-whipped Hollis, who then fell to the ground, fracturing his skull in the whole episode around three times. So pretty severe. The hooded figure then turned his attention to Larry, the girlfriend, and smacked her across the head with the butt of his gun before then telling her to run. I was about to say, um, a lot of pistol whipping going on here. A lot. And this, you know, like a lot of times we talk about like, oh, like cinema and whatnot. Man, too many movies I see where someone gets like, the action hero gets pistol whipped. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just like, oh, you know, how dare you hit me? And I was like, man, I would be out on the oh, ground. Yeah. Like, no way, dude. That's, I'm out. that's like a hammer almost. That, <laughs> dude, that is a that solid is... chunk of metal and or wood. Exactly. Just, and, you know, movies are movies, but just right. see someone get pistol up like 50 times. I'm like, I'm out. Like, right. you even raise that pistol into the air. I'm on the ground. <laughs> no. Ooh, ah, yeah. Ooh. It's like I didn't even hit you. I'm like, uh, look, I'll be, you know, I'm like you NBA. Did. I'm going down. <laughs> you know, how, like NBA players will like flop, pretending like they get hit, or soccer players. Sure. Will, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm flopping. Oh, oh, no, oh, red no. flag. <laughs> or it's red like flag. I didn't even hit what? you. Like, oh, uh, no, you did. <laughs> no, but you did though. You definitely you did. You were, yeah. You, it was the it was the impending attack. Yeah, look, I, I'm with you, man. Because like. Yeah, movies are one thing they demonstrate that like, oh, yeah, you're very resilient. I uh, couldn't go through with this, but it's clear here and I'll get to it that Hollis, despite this, uh, this pretty dramatic head wound, still was able to save the day in a way. But I'll get to that in just a moment. But yeah, so so the assailant after uh, Jimmy Hollis falls to the ground, then turns to Mary Jean Larry and says, hey, run. After hitting her, of course, says run. She is is wearing high heels, and so she does attempt to run towards the road to see if she can escape or flag down anybody. This is clearly some sort of sadistic play on whoever is wearing this particular mask, but uh, she was ultimately chased down by the assailant, overtaken, and hit again. Moments later, there were headlights that were seen by uh, from an oncoming car that scared the attacker away, thankfully. So she's still laying down at this point, you know, Hollis was able to get up and get the attention of that car, and both of them were, thankfully, because of that, uh, rushed to the hospital. 
Now, Larry stayed overnight for her minor head wounds, uh, while Hollis needed to stay hospitalized for several days to recover from the several skull fractures. But ultimately, both were able to survive the encounter, thankfully. Uh, and that's obviously why we have this story today. Yeah, I, I should have caught on to that. I was like, this is so much detail. Uh, right. But that's... <sighs> I mean, like, it's just something you never want to see or be involved in. It's a, it's just a nightmare. It's a horror story. You know, I have to say it. I don't envy my parents or even my grandparents' generation because you have a lot of people like this, masked people running around taking out couples at Lover's Lanes. This reminds me of, like, the Zodiac Killers actions, right? Very similar in that regard. And it feels like a trope today because we see it a lot in movies. But this was reality for a lot of people in a lot of places. And it's very spooky. Uh, something that I'm thankfully taking for granted today is that uh, we have a lot of entertainment that keeps us in the privacy of our homes so we don't have to drive out and about, you know, park on a lover's lane at midnight to get our kisses in, to get our holding hands in. But man, spooky times because this was not all that long ago. Yeah, super unsettling and very serious situation. To make light of it, though, goofy ass, like, get up. A oh, yeah, very goofy. With some holes in it. Some some early Jason Voorhees kind of looks. Yeah. You know what's interesting too is um is before we get too deep into this, you know, this this whole mystery, or at least the 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 whole town of Texarkana and and the violence and criminal activity going on actually spurred the movie called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which was made, I think, in the 70s and then was remade uh maybe somewhere around a decade ago or within the last decade. And it does feature basically that Jason Voorhees kind of look or the original one where he was wearing overalls with plaid shirt, a sack over the head. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's a very enticing title. Yeah. The town that dreaded sundown. I mean, I feel like it should just be the town that dreaded the town that was in dread. I, I, I would move out. I think it felt like the wild west, but in the middle of the 1900s. Yeah, that'd be the, the just as a sequel, the town that dreaded. Or the we. town, the, the town that was <laughs> still dreading. <laughs> okay, so that was the first attack. Like I said, they both survived, and so as you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of criminal behavior going around, and so people go, "Okay, well, hey, you're alive, thankfully. Let's kind of move on." So nothing was really made of this case, and we know better. We have hindsight. So enters the second attack, which was about a month later on March 24th, with Richard Griffin, who was around 29, and his girlfriend Polly Ann Moore, who was 17. They were both found shot and dead inside Griffin's car. The car was parked on an isolated road called Richmond Road, which you might remember it was around the same area as the first attack. And Griffin was actually a World War II veteran, uh, but he was slumped over in the front seat, dead from two bullet wounds. Moore was sprawled out on the back seat of the car, also dead. A bloody patch of land nearby outside of the car suggested that perhaps the couple had been shot outside of the car and then placed back inside the car. So that something had gone on, whether they were taken out of the car, whether something else happened, whatever. But then when they were murdered, they were put back in the car in, in certain positions. God, not that I would ever do anything like this, but the, oh God, the, the guts that this person has to do something like that and then still be at the crime scene doing other things. Right. Like fiddling like, around or whatever. Both so fast. You know what I'm saying? Like something like that happened. You just run and run. And like, I can't imagine just be like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. And then, okay, cool. I'm going to kind of like dress up the bodies and, and do various mm. things. I don't know, man. That's. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a lot of balls. Right. And it like 
some disrespect involved. I mean, on top of the the already heavy level of disrespect the crime yeah. gives you, but uh, I think some more detail just for the sake of it. Richard, I believe Richard Griffin was in the front seat, uh, slumped over, yes, but hands holding his head, uh, his head and his knees, kind of thing. Um, and it's and it's not like he was. It it does seem intentional, right? That that he was put in a position like that, almost like a shame sort of position or a hiding yeah. sort of thing, rather than. Uh, I believe Pollyanne Moore seemed to be more, not thrown into the car, but she was just kind of laid out in the back seat, kind of face down as if just put in there. I don't know. Definitely pretty sadistic on top of everything already going on, especially since whoever it was pulled them out of the car for whatever reason, it seems, only to perform the crime and then place them back in the car. It's it's weird. Honestly, I'd say... There's a good chance that they were pulled out of the car just for the hell of it. Mm. And I say this because from the the other case, you know, he told the girlfriend to, you know, pistol whipped her and then, and said, then said, run, run. Oh, you know, yeah, so dude. this this person likes to play games. Right? This person so, is on a power trip. A, yep. hundred percent. Yep. Nailed it. Yeah. I'm thinking that this person is just sitting there and was just like, well, OK, like you are going to step out of the car and do whatever I tell you. I'm going to get a power trip off of this. And then from there, I'm going to murder you. God, that's brutal. Very brutal. Well, unfortunately, you know, there wasn't much else to see at the scene. And, and over the course of that day, it was raining. So any potential footprints that might have been found at the crime scene to give any further clues to the police, they had been washed away. But thankfully, and this will come back. The police did find bullet casings or slugs, I should say, in the nearby area. And they assumed that it seemed, okay, well, maybe these are from a Colt 32. And later on, they actually realized that or hypothesized that this could have been a Colt 32 that was wrapped in a blanket. I was about to say, this is the linen murderer. He's over here wearing the uh, pillowcase, wrapping the gun oh, in a blanket. Oh, you're right. <laughs> This guy is the uh, the bedroom linen murderer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. linen murderers. The bedsheet man. Interesting. They were, like I said, there was very little to go off of, unfortunately, but that didn't stop the authorities from pursuing a lot of false leads. They actually interviewed between 50 and 60 witnesses, mostly stemming from the patrons of Club Dallas, which was a local bar that was nearby to the crime scene. But unfortunately, this led to somewhere around 100 false leads in the days following this. So we really didn't get anything out of this investigation. No no tangible leads, I should say. But it's nice to know that the police are still taking a look at some of these activities. It's just yet to be seen that these attacks are related in any way. Yeah. As far as the, the police are concerned in this moment. I think I've come to like realize that I always look towards how the case is handled by the authorities. Mm -hmm. And this is like, it's unfortunate, right? But it seems like they're doing their due diligence. Yeah. Like there's a lot of times where you've broken down cases to me and I sit there and I go, well, they screwed that up. Like, you know, if they just did this or didn't tamper with this or have the father lead the investigation for some reason that you know right like we would have been in a better spot whatever that stuff happens is always like so frustrating oh yeah so it's it's kind of like nice to hear it's like look it, yes evidence did get washed away but they're taking the time putting in the time and effort to try and get any sort of lead right it's nice like when the mystery isn't purely because of a mistrial or just a mishandling of evidence or whatever definitely the fact that yeah i agree with you completely i think the challenge here is 
so far, right, and we know this coming into this, unlike the police, that when these criminal behaviors are, or, or this violence is happening on these supposed lover lanes, right, where, and, and these are so-called lover's lanes because of their seclusion. They tend to be darker, they tend to be removed where, you know, they could do more private activities, you know, out of the purview of other people or parents or whatever. And so, you know, it makes it very difficult for a passerby to come by. I think in the first attack, we we're lucky that a car drove by. And the second one, we're kind of lucky that there was a nearby bar or whatever. It is in the same area, but regardless, it, it's not leading to, to anything because, again, it's in a secluded area. And so it makes it very challenging when there's no evidence left behind outside of these here bullet casings. Yeah. Yeah. Like you were saying, the whole point and a lot of the people that go there are young couples mm -hmm. uh, that have the ability to drive or something like that. And they just don't have the privacy of like being home and making out with their, uh, you know, <laughs> with the person that they're interested in. With the food channel on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be in college making out with mom in the kitchen, you know? Like, <laughs> you want some privacy. Yeah. Even if you're allowed to close the door like that. Just <laughs> <laughs> you get your door taken off your hinges that way. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, the whole point is just to be somewhere where not a lot of people are going to be. Right. Well, now comes the third attack which is almost a month after the second one now. It's about three weeks later on April 14th, and that features Betty Jo Booker, who was 15 and an avid saxophone player. They were leaving a session with their group named the Rhythmares. Now around 1.30 a.m., Booker's friend, Paul Martin, who was 16, who she had known for about 10 years, so basically they were childhood friends that are now in their mid-teens, he's coming to pick her up. The friends stopped at Spring Lake Park, which was just a few minutes from Booker's Sussex Downs home. So they're not far from home, but they're stopping here at this park. The following morning, Martin's body was discovered at the edge of North Park Road. He had been shot around four times. Six hours after that, Booker's body was found discovered behind a tree around two miles from Martin's body. Ballistic tests showed that they were killed by the same 32 caliber weapon that was used in the first killing. Now I say the first killing, that refers to the second attack, right? Because of the first attack resulting in two survivors, thankfully. Right. Now, Martin's car, on the other hand, was found yet another three miles away from Booker's body uh, with the keys still in the ignition. So it seems that whoever did this, whatever happened, these two friends were split up. The bodies were two miles apart and the car was further on still as if whoever did this, this assailant, uh, used the car to drive perhaps Booker further away and then ditch the car several miles beyond that. But it, it's, it's really hard to say without too much other evidence. But it wasn't until this particular attack that the media started to give this attacker the name the Phantom Killer and that the public alarm increased after this attack because people are starting to say, okay, there are definitely violent attacks happening with some sort of similarity involved. And so now this isn't just another one of the, hey, there's a lot of crime in the area. You know, we just have to deal with the pain. There's more fear now because someone's like, all right, yeah. this is serialized that this could, this could happen to anybody at any time. And soon thereafter, a voluntary curfew was put in place. Businesses started to put their hours down. They started closing earlier and gun sales actually skyrocketed. So now we have full on panic happening in Texarkana. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Texas, even if it was back then. Oh yeah, bang, I'm bang. I'm sure people were, yep. It's like, yep. Yep, I'm gonna, look, I'm on board with that too. Like, I'm, what am I gonna defend my house? with a bat against a gun like how do you, you know yeah right it's a sticky situation 
But yeah, that's what we're that's what we're looking at. You know, this whole town is lit ablaze with fear, and and it's worth noting as well. And it's probably obvious from the name, but just for those who don't know where Texarkana is, it lies on the border between Texas and Arkansas, and that will come into play later on when we get to the suspects. But I did want to mention just kind of whereabouts it was in case you wanted a, a little mental map of it. So that would be on the far east side of the state. So that's where we're at. Now comes the fourth attack. This happened on May 3rd uh, with Virgil Starks, who was 37. He was in his living room listening to his favorite weekly radio show when he was shot twice through a closed window. So immediately, we have a completely different style of behavior here. No, this is actually an older gentleman, obviously 37 not being old, but compared to all the other uh, victims or attempted victims. This is one of the older folk and uh, and it's happening at his residence yeah, through a window. See, like, that's what I'm saying. Uh, right. you know, it, crossed my, it crossed my like mind. I'm like, well, these, these are happening to young couples, young couples who are going out to these secluded locations. So don't do that. But it's like, who's to say the person's not going to switch it up? Right. Well, I think what happened was he's out here, you know, fishing up on Lover's Lane. When the fear increased, these, these young folk are like, hey, I'm going to wise up. I'm going to stay home. This makes sense. So now he has perhaps less opportunity to continue doing things as he was. And so he, in whatever, I don't know what his motive here is, uh, but he's like, listen, or the, you know, they, we don't know who this is. They are like, all right, fine. I'm going to change my tactics. And they just start going up to people's houses. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah. That's just like, again, that just strikes fear into the whole entire town. Oh yeah. Like, what do you do? This person's just like their MO switching up. Right. I gets oh god i don't even I, I would think too like maybe they switched it up because you know the police were looking uh very closely at these different secluded locations you know like Ooh. Who, who's to say yeah like you uh you go up to a window you knock on the window with your gun you say hey get out of the car and the two cops rip off their mask and it's actually you're not young kids you're actually cops and, like, <laughs> yeah. and it's a sting oh my god um, that's a <laughs> I mean, honestly, that, I could see that happening. Um, maybe not with the masks or whatever, but yeah, man, that's, uh, you know, yep. they established that there's a consistent trend here. Exactly. Why, yeah. why wouldn't you set up some surveillance or whatnot? And what came to mind is <laughs> cops in ghillie suits watching from a distance, <laughs> yeah. but like whatever tactics, <laughs> right. whatever works. Yeah, I don't know, man. But, uh, you know, flashing back to Virgil Starks here, unfortunate demise here in his living room, two shots from the window, uh, through a closed window, no less. Now, his wife was upstairs. She rushes down because she hears, obviously, these gunshots go off. She's, uh, she's wondering what's going on. She's checking on her husband. The body is slumped over in his chair, and she goes, oh, damn. So she runs to go to the phone to call the police. Now, before she can get to the phone, she too is shot twice from the very same window. Now, despite her injuries, Katie did manage to pull herself up and grab a pistol, which the couple left in the living room. Very smart move, especially given where you live and given what's going on. Uh, just like you were saying, Fredo, these people are ready for whatever could come their way. So she grabs this weapon and she hears the killer enter the home. Luckily, you know, she didn't enter the scuffle. She didn't try to have some sort of shootout. She was right. able to escape the house and get to the neighbor's home, who then alerted the police. Because of this, she ultimately survived, and I believe it's because of this activity or her reaction time and her fortitude, right, for pushing through her injuries, that following this attack, the killer actually faded back into the shadows and never struck again, at least as far as we are aware. You know, there were other criminal behaviors, but, what? you know, the police assume, authorities assume that these 
these four attacks are the same consistent person yeah. or persons. You know, after this attack, this particular person didn't come back to light. I'm, I'm assuming. So wait, yeah, did she fire? Sorry, did she fire back? I'm trying to. That's a good question, Christian. I don't know if she if she did fire back uh, after retrieving the weapon, uh, but it sounded like at that point he must have barged into the house to try to finish what he started, right? Yeah, as far as we know, she didn't fire back because she was she had some difficulty seeing from the, the wounds that she had suffered. And so once he entered the home, she decided it was best to try to run. Smart move. I mean, it put the fear in the killer. And uh, I think, you know, if we're assuming that these are all truly part of the same attacks, obviously this is an unsolved mystery. If these are all the same attacker, this is like the first loose end he's had or they've had since the very beginning. And no less, this is a armed survivor. And so this might've put the fear into the killer for, you know, which- uh... <sighs> It's just so interesting to me to see it end where like, yes, sure, you know, this person got away. And this is a, you know, I guess, I guess the only time where the killer could have gotten severe injured but didn't so maybe that's what struck fear into into them but she didn't fire back and it seems like you know he'd still pretty much have most control of the situation it's just it, it's, i don't know it's very odd to me that the killer's like okay i'm done like that was it <laughs> like yeah that's true i guess if i if i really think about it and i think about these different instances this person whoever they were were going after young couples who were defenseless and who were secluded now for whatever reason they are now pursuing people in the comfort of their own homes, people that might be better prepared, people that are basically on their playing field, right? And, yeah. and they probably yeah. didn't assume, you know, that gun sales would go up, that they would, that their next victim would actually be armed, potentially ready. And so at this point, they're like, okay, I, I'm gonna cut it while I'm still alive and, and not caught. Right, people are gonna be shooting back at this point. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for better or worse, the escalation of gun activity in this town might've been what stifled further violence. It's it's hard to say, but I think really the fact that Katie was able to get out, regardless of the weapon, it probably put the doubt into the killer's mind because assuming, hey, maybe this killer said, I'm gonna pop these folks before they even see me. Maybe they're not wearing their pillowcase today. Maybe they thought Katie <laughs> yeah. saw them. You know, you, that's we, true. I, th I think when I'm a kid and I'm doing something, obviously not criminal, but like, and I'm doing some sort of prank or doing something I'm gonna get in trouble for, you assume that everybody knows everything, right? As soon as yeah. they look at you, you're like, ah, you know, I did you know. something. Oh, you've seen me. I didn't or, do my homework, you know. Yeah. Like, and so yeah, for sure, something this dramatic, you know, you have to think. And clearly, if they're doing something like this, they're already not in their right headspace. But I don't know. Regardless, this is where this criminal behavior ended, as far as the police believe. Yeah. Right. I mean, in terms of like this show, that's something that's newer. I mean, we've had a couple cases where there were serial killers, but they just keep going, keep pushing mm -hmm. through it. You know, like the Zodiac Killer, or you had. um different killers who like mock the police and whatnot. It's just oh, like, yeah. I mean, like it's, it's like I said, it's, it's different hundred percent. It's just very interesting to see that the killer's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm out. My once a month activity, you know, I'm done. I'm not going to taunt. I'm not going to pass pass. Right. I can't, I can't keep up with this. And, uh, you know, thankfully, right. But you know, as we say, let's dive into the investigation though, and see what we can uncover from that angle, because there are some interesting pieces that kind of help lead to our lead suspects. But as we mentioned, you know, this this area of Texas, crime was relatively commonplace. So people weren't really necessarily a stranger to this activity. And therefore, you know, the police were swamped left and right with theft, murders, assault cases. There's a lot going on, making this type of case even harder to dig into, which is another reason why I think this is perpetuated as an unsolved mystery. 
Now, on April 15th of 1946, which is one day after the third attack went down, this is where the FBI jumps in and joins the case. So now we have the FBI, we have Texas Rangers, we have the Arkansas State Police, and we have the local Texarkana Police, who are all working together on what became one of the biggest murder investigations in Texas history, as you can imagine. Yeah, they got all the departments in on this. Um, We're all in here. God, could you imagine? It's like how... Oh. Like I said, I I would never put myself in that situation. Being in that situation, I can I can only imagine how terrified you'd be. You had like hundreds of people, people of authority in different departments looking for you. Oh yeah. Like it kind of makes sense, you know. That adds a little bit more to the pile of like, oh well, I'm gonna stop. But like if there was any yeah type of like inclination to the killer that there were so many people, so many different departments, like that could help push that narrative of like, oh, I should stop. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, I'll be real. I also wouldn't be found in this kind of position, but imagine being a criminal in this time frame in this area. I wouldn't be caught stealing a quarter. Exactly. Because you have to imagine if you are one of the criminals caught doing whatever in a area with prolific crime, you have to imagine the punishment will be severe because this town is going to be aggro on whatever's going down. Oh, so, yeah. You know, eye for an eye, you know, the punishment is going to be relative to the crime, right? But I think for better or worse in this particular time frame in this area, the punishment is probably going to outscale whatever the crime is just due to the heightened tension going on in this town. So that could be another reason why this person's like, eh, I'm pulling the plug. I'm not pulling the antagonizing kind of sending sly letters to the cops and newspapers sort of card. I'm getting out. Well, the thing too is, and you never want to think about it this way, but you already got away with it a handful of times. Yeah. You know, why push it? You could just retire and get away with it, I guess. Like, ugh, it's, slimy way to think about it but that just like crossed my mind so right i, I mean well there. to think to think in their shoes you know you kind of yeah exactly which is like you you know obviously not right in the head you did this you got away with it stuff is really bubbling up now you could just walk away mm-hmm. no one will ever know love the rest of your days like that's right. crazy if you know we're we know that this has not been solved or, or anything like that but you got to assume, okay, so then the person, uh, you know, lived the rest of their days, continued to go about being a uh, a human being in society. Like, could you imagine just like, like that person, someone's neighbor, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, you could I'm check that like, person out at the grocery store. You could pass that person uh, like, in the greetings whoa. card aisle of a Hallmark. These could be people anywhere, anytime. This yeah. guy could make your pizza. It's a little <laughs> wild to think about. Wild but thought. Yeah, I mean, this person went back into society, right? Just went back into the, the normal life. And so it friends with somebody, right? probably hangs out with somebody, you know, to have someone in your home that you didn't know was a serial killer or something. Like that. That's crazy. It's that, mm-hmm. a, a really wild thought. Wild. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, when it comes back, remember, we found a couple of shell casings, those 32 caliber shell casings. And those were, to remind you, found in the vicinity of Martin's car, which was the third attack. Now, those are being studied, thankfully. Here comes your favorite part, the science, to, to figure out what, like, maybe ballistic information we can get from this. Mm-hmm. Now, Captain Gonzalez, who was the head of the Texas Rangers, stated that these 32 caliber bullets were also used in the slaying of Griffin and Moore, which is the second attack. And so this is where people start to go, okay, you know, the connection between these two attacks are starting to be realized that we have a potential serial killer afoot. And actually after going through the FBI, the Department of Public Safety of Austin, Texas confirmed that all of the bullets and cartridge casings 
uh, submitted in both of the cases were in fact fired from the same firearm. So now we went from hunch to confirmation. Boom, there is in fact a serial killer here. Look, I don't know what kind of technology they had back then, you know what I'm saying? I've seen Batman take a shattered <laughs> right? bullet and reconstruct it. I know they ain't got something like that that's too crazy, but I mean, you can match a bullet casings. That's been something that police departments have been doing for many a years. I'll never forget that scene, by the way, in The Dark Knight, where uh, the gun whips up, blasts those bricks, and then they analyze the shatter pattern. <laughs> yeah, I was like, um, what? I, I saw like, that in IMAX, and I happened to be <laughs> right by the subwoofer, wherever it was hidden. Maybe oh, it was, was in loud. my chair, dude. It <laughs> it scared that into my memory. <laughs> it's such a loud scene. Oh, yeah. Now, going back to the investigation, okay, we know that there's a serial killer afoot that we've related the second and third attacks now based on some ballistics. And in examining Martin's body, again, from the third attack, it showed that he potentially put up a struggle before succumbing to his wounds. Now, in the Martin Booker case, that same case, fingerprints were found in Martin's vehicle, but the prints were inconclusive. Latent fingerprints were developed and were ultimately unexplainable. Latent fingerprints basically just being fingerprints, you can't see the uh, the oils that are left behind, sweat, whatever. That, that's the classic dusting the scene right. to pull prints, yeah. So we have some fingerprints and that will come up a little bit later when we talk about the suspects, but nothing conclusive here, nothing to pull up, nothing to attach anybody to. But unlike both the Holly Larry and Griffin Moore cases, I'm referring to the cases or the attacks by both of the last names of the victims here, uh, the investigation into the Booker Martin case eventually yielded a main suspect who we'll talk about here in just a moment. But Max Tackett, an Arkansas State Police trooper, noticed that each time the Phantom Killer struck, a car was reported stolen and later abandoned. So it's unknown where these vehicles were stolen from or where they were abandoned or, or how it was related, but ultimately authorities felt that this was strong enough of a coincidence that they must have been connected. And from that, police eventually tracked down one of these stolen cars. It was found abandoned on a local downtown parking lot on June 28th, of 1946, and this is kind of where we start to get one of our first suspects. Now, police began to stake out this area, and 21-year-old Peggy Swinney was arrested for leaving a stolen vehicle in that parking lot. At the time, her new husband, UL Lee Swinney, would become and remain a prime suspect in the slaying. So, thankfully, the police are really astute in their observations. Yeah. You know, Max over here, Max Tackett, is connecting a lot of dots and saying, I can't help but notice that cars are going missing and being reported abandoned concurrent to these crimes. Yep. Basically, someone's stealing a car to then drive to a scene, do the crime, and drive away. So this person's relatively smart, right? Cutting off any sort of potential trails that might lead to them in particular. Yeah, I don't think that's too far of a stretch right like the person their weapon of choice is a firearm you know just hold up a, a, someone driving at a stop sign or something like that point the gun person gets out you have a car yeah that's true interesting though that you said that this woman was arrested for leaving a stolen car there yeah and then the husband we'll get into more detail later mm -hmm. primary suspect but yeah like i never thought and this is just my thought during this moment i know you're still breaking stuff down husband and wife doing stuff right yeah newly newly married newly married maybe she married into it helping not necessarily like couple on couple crime maybe yeah but it'd be if it was a couple of crime it'd be very interesting to see because there's at, at this point two scenarios where the person's gotten away and there's only been 
one person reported each time. That's true. And I'm assuming they ask about like the build, right? And they're probably just like, okay, I'm gonna assume that the wife isn't built like a large man. Sure. So they're probably just like, yeah, it was a man this much height, right? Like you, you can kind of, it, even though if someone's putting a certain amount of clothing on, you can still kind of tell it's like, okay, it seems like a manly build or sure. maybe a slimmer build or whatnot. But I'm assuming they're just like, okay, same type of build, same type of like, this person was wearing a pillowcase over the head, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But it'd be, so I don't think that she was necessarily there per se, like at the crime scene in a certain extent of like, in the moment but like could be there in a sense like driving the getaway car or helping get the getaway car stuff like that that's true the accomplice that got the car because how would you then connect like well there was this uh masculine figure with a mask on that attacked us and then somewhere else in the city they're like yes this feminine figure with a mask on or, or whatever stole our car. And yes, you're, that's a good point, a good theory that you're building. Like, I don't have any information here regarding those stolen cars. I just have the connection. But it would be interesting to dive into those car thefts. Like, are they hotwired? Are they the keys were taken and the car was driven away? Or was it that, yeah, like these people were pulled out of their car and stolen in front of the people that own the car? It would definitely change kind of the theory here. So yeah, it's worth noting here. So now we have two potential suspects that are related by way of this connection, right? These stolen cars that are abandoned. Uh, that's Peggy Swinney and their new husband, UL Lee Swinney. Now these two suspects are connected to the last two attacks and it is believed that they might've been responsible for the first two attacks as well, but there's no evidence that can really indicate this theory, but it's theorized at least that they are in fact part of all four. But that's where the investigation truly leads off or ends off unsolved. But let's dive though into the suspects, starting with Peggy and UL Swinney themselves and see if we can't dig a little deeper and find out if there's some more connective tissue here. Hey everybody, Trevor here again, once again. Uh, I don't wanna surprise you, but I didn't change my name. But hey, got some housekeeping for you all and don't skip, just pause. Pause right there, friend, because I have a podcast from a couple friends of mine that I really want you to check out. No, not a sponsor. Genuine friends of mine that I work with, Jack Patillo and Jeff Ramsey, have a new podcast called Annual Pass. If you're fans of this show, these are good friends of ours, co-workers. And uh, it's a podcast all around theme parks. And each week they break down a new ride, the history of the ride, a lot of facts about the theme parks. So if you love theme parks like I know they do, you should check out their podcast and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you very much for supporting our friends here in the podcast space. Every now and then, I might shout them out here because we got a lot of friends and a lot of podcasts out there. Anyway, let's dive into the sponsors for today. This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better, more informed, critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's going on and what's happening even inside your own brain. In every episode, Jordan interviews a different, fascinating expert who can pull back the curtain on the worlds that most of us can't access. Jordan has an undeniable talent at pulling never-before-heard stories and tactical bits of wisdom out of his awesome guests. A couple episodes that I would recommend that you check out from Jordan is uh, the episode with Anthony Raimondi, a former mob enforcer for the New York Five Families, where he talked about the Vatican's ties to the mob. You can also learn about how to combat disinformation from his interview with Rene DiResta, a researcher at Stanford who studies what turns ordinary people into conspiracy theorists. So 
if you're interested in the theories, like I know you are, these might be some topics that I think you'd find interesting from Jordan. But Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. These episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your way of life right away. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting, and there's never a dull show. Search the Jordan Harbinger show with H-A-R-B, as in boy, I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you decide to listen to podcasts. And enjoy. This episode of Red Web is also sponsored by HelloFresh. We all want to cook amazing dinners, but finding the time to meal plan, get to the grocery store, and then cook is very difficult. That's why HelloFresh sends fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes right to your door. HelloFresh makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable, and that's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh offers 25 recipes to choose from every single week, from veggie meals to craft burgers and extra special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy with all recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Thanks to HelloFresh, I have been enjoying cooking here at home with my girlfriend. It makes it feel like I'm a, a cuisinière. It makes me makes me feel like I'm a real chef. Uh, when they give you everything you need and simple instructions with pictures. I'm a guy that needs those pictures. Uh, but their food is quite delicious, very healthy. I track those macros, so it helps me keep on track, and I really appreciate how simple they make it. Go to HelloFresh.com slash RedWeb12 and use code R-E-D-W-E-B-1-2, that's RedWeb12, for 12 free meals. You're going to be eating like a king. That's also with free shipping. So don't even worry about it, okay? Food right to your door, thanks to RedWeb. That's HelloFresh.com slash RedWeb12 and use code RedWeb12 for 12 free meals plus free shipping. Get you some. And with all that said, let's dive right back into the mystery. So UL Sweeney, born in Arkansas, but was a frequent traveler around the Texas area. He had an extensive criminal record in both Atlanta, Texas and Texarkana, which is worth mentioning, has jurisdiction kind of across the border of the states, right? Between Texas and Arkansas, which is why I kind of talked about his geographic location earlier. But that extensive criminal record included burglary, counterfeiting, car theft, robbery, assault, and even attempt to sell a stolen car. So he's got a lot of warrants out for him. He's on the run and a lot of his established behavior falls right into line with what's going on here. I I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the the robbery was arm robbery too. Yeah, that's that's totally possible. It's also worth noting that all of these crimes took place around the same time, uh, around that June 28th, 1946 time period. That's that same time period that Peggy was uh, ID'd as leaving a stolen vehicle in a parking lot, which then kind of goes into what your theory was. Maybe she is the assistant in a way that she facilitates the car and facilitates some of the machinations of the crime. And then the husband, UL, might be the person who does the crime itself, right? Yep. Now, what's interesting here is there was a certain time where UL is leaving Atlanta and the Atlanta police actually followed UL out of their city as he drove toward Texarkana. Now, they didn't stop him because they didn't necessarily have concrete evidence, but they did suspect him of these crimes. They just couldn't prove it. So that's why they were following him as he's exiting this town again, heading towards Texarkana. Now, that's where local police were already looking for him. So he's got police everywhere looking for him. 
and uh, and he's kind of on the run, just doing his thing, traveling between the, the cities. Now, Tackett, who I mentioned earlier, the person who was talking about the uh, cars being related to this crime, Tackett actually arrested the 29-year-old suspect inside the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station. Now, after being placed in the police car, UL Swinney actually said, quote, hell, I know you want me for more than just stealing cars. This could be an admission of some sort. It's hard to say if it has to do with this particular crime spree, but clearly he's wanted for burglary, counterfeit, robbery, etc. Yeah, he's done so many things at this point. It's just like, what isn't on this person's rap sheet? Right. I mean, I'm sure he's done other things. Whether he was talking about these string of murders or not, I'm sure there's other things he he hasn't been caught for. Man, bad people that are just roaming the streets. Just roaming around. The police are going. The police are like inching around behind him saying like, is this the guy? I don't don't know. Hands dripping in blood. He goes, I don't know. I just don't know if we have the evidence yet. You know, (laughs) I mean, there's so many different procedures and you have to go about things a certain way because, right, you, you need to make things stick in court. Sure. Uh, but And and God forbid you put put away the wrong person behind jail. Exactly. But my God, like, come on. This person's doing so many bad things. Right. Well, let's complicate matters, okay? So Uh while being arrested here in Arkansas, Peggy Swinney, again, the wife, uh, decided to give several detailed accounts and descriptions regarding the Booker Martin murders while they were being questioned by police. So she's in police custody. She's she's being questioned. She gives a lot of details. And Peggy rode with police to the site of Paul Martin's murder and described how her husband shot the young couple. She started telling police things that only a person who was actually at the crime scene would know. For example, Martin's date book was thrown into the nearby bushes. How would she have known this? The only person that knew about this was Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley who had found it, was the only one who knew about it, and had taken it as evidence, and hadn't really told a whole bunch of people. So the fact that she knew about this is highly suspect. I mean, like, what else do you need? Boom, right? Like, how are you you just gonna... That is so obscure, you know what I mean? Like, so random, like, there was a notebook, it was thrown behind Like, Like, right over there, sir. Like, what are the chances? That right. even if this person wanted to take credit for these murders or uh, being a part of these murders and didn't actually do it, what are the chances that they would guess that correctly? Well, her statement continued, right? She starts to lay out the story here. So her statement recalled the night of April 13th, the night before Booker and Martin were murdered. Now, there's a lot of very interesting details in here. So... Uh, feel free to stop me if you need. So she and Ewell were only dating at the time. Remember, they're married. And this wasn't a whole awful long ago that these crime sprees started. So they were dating at the time of April 13th when they were arrested and later June, they were married. So this is a two month gap here. Anyway, they were only dating at the time. They drove in from Dallas and stopped at a cafe on New Boston Road. After seeing a movie, again, and just to remind you, this is her story of what happened that night, in case I wasn't clear. So after seeing a movie at the Joy Theater, the couple drank a couple bottles of beer and took four bottles of beer with them. Shortly after, they ended up at Spring Lake Park. The two finished their beers, and he left the car telling her that he was going to go take a leak. She then told police, quote, he was gone from the car about one hour when I heard something that sounded like two gunshots. I do not know whether they were pistol or shotgun shots, end quote. 
He's gone for an hour saying, I'm going to go take the world's longest leap. Oh, man. I mean... And this is at that that park, remember, that the two... Uh, the first couple. I think it was the third attack, I should say. Oh, the one behind the bar? So the bar was near the second attack. The second attack and the first attack were near each other. Uh, the third attack took place at Spring Lake Park, or at least that's where Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin stopped for that night. And then their bodies were found a few miles away. Uh, but yes, so this places them... On April 13th, the night before the activity went down here at the park, they're bas she's basically saying, yo, we did it. And here's how it went down. She's saying they or her husband was the one that did the attack on April 14th at Spring Lake Park. <sighs> so here's the thing. And it's because of this damn show. <laughs> <laughs> there are people that want to be caught for stuff like this. Well, she's not saying she did. It. You know, she's saying that I was hanging in the car. Right. He went off. Bang, bang. I heard something and he comes back an hour later. Right. And that's the, this is all happening while she's just chilling in the car for an hour is what she's saying. But you think if she's vomiting all of this valuable information that I don't know, you would think that she wants to get out of situation that she's in or wants to better her situation in case, you know, they do get caught or whatnot. At that point, I'm sure there's like hard evidence that you can pull. Like if your if your motive is in some way, shape, or form, like better situation by giving this person up. Oh man, this is where my mind's going with that. I think you're onto something for sure. And we'll we'll continue through this, but I, I do want to put a pin in that thought because she you're right. She might be laying the groundwork for recusing herself from this crime while also trying to maybe throw her husband or boyfriend at the time under the bus for this activity, but then maybe things get a little hairy. Uh, maybe there's some sort of pressure that's happening here where they're they're being locked into it or being threatened into to staying or maybe they're they're fearing that they'll get caught. I don't know. But we'll, we'll uncover some more details that I think yeah. might lean more into your theory. OK, so back to her kind of statement here. Right. She's in the car. An hour goes by. She says she hears two gunshots. Doesn't really know if it's a pistol or a shotgun or whatnot, but that's when UL comes back to the car and starts driving out of the park at a rapid rate of speed. This is freaking her out a little bit is what she's saying. And she says, quote, when he came back to the car, I saw that his clothes were wet up to his knees and damp on up to his waist, end quote. Swinney then drove to Peggy's mother's home, but not before changing his clothes at a nearby wooded area. According to her statement, he then drove through a pasture and into a wooded area to hide his car. So, you know, again, we have some uh, connective tissue here with the idea of abandoning cars or whatnot, but if this is his car, I don't know why he's hiding it unless there were witnesses around, but it is worth mentioning though. You know, we're, we're, we're wondering if she's maybe just trying to take credit for this crime or whatnot. Yeah. See, here's... Uh, you do... You, mm, you guys always do this to me. What's up? How is this not the person? How is this not the person? I... And then, and then, and then, and then, and then what happens? You, you, the other foot drops or the other suspect comes into play. Uh-huh. And I... Uh, and I get pulled into another direction. Here's the thing. I don't know if that's going to happen. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's why I feel like, yes, this is technically unsolved, but. Right. But pretty I don't want to kind of straightforward. Yeah. I mean, we have another suspect to go through. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But I'm I, I'm with you, man. I How is this not what? the duo? Right. If, if, yeah, exactly. If this is, uh, man, if this is a true story. Come on. What mm -hmm. what else is this person like taking a piss for an hour during this area? <laughs> Gunshots, hiding the car. Like, yeah. Uh, like, what? Well, 
here's where the other foot taps the ground, right? Some of the details that she gave, especially regarding her involvement, changed over time as she gave different statements. So now she's starting to muddy the waters on her own statements. And Peggy later confessed that instead of being a bystander, she was actually sat in the back seat of the victim's car after UL shot Paul Martin. So it's this confliction of detail and statements that really start to make it hard to pin down what's actually going on here and hold them accountable legally. Yeah, because if you if you were, I mean, it's easy to tell the truth, right? Like if it's the truth, then you just go, well, this is what happened. This is what mm -hmm. I did. But if you're, if you're making stuff up or fluffing the story or taking out pieces it's harder to remember those details i mean i've seen a, i've seen people who are theoretically innocent arrested for less so that's what makes this kind of frustrating yeah um how do you full-on confess to a murder and then and then well on one story she said uh she was waiting around on the other story she said she was fully part of it so i guess we'll have to just wait on this one but it's interesting though because she's completely opened up and she's talking however ul would not and that's when police decided at the time to take ul to little rock arkansas for a shot of sodium pentothal you might recognize that as colloquially known as truth serum. The truth serum! Yes, so we're taking him to Little Rock. Truly a little, little city. Uh, I've only seen it from afar, but it's a nice little town. They're gonna give him a little injection of truth serum to see what's up. They gave him too much and he passed out without saying a word. What? <laughs> I don't, <laughs> this is just like, so shocking to me, but they're like, all right, um, we got this man. We're gonna, we got truth serum. We're gonna see what's up. We're gonna, you're gonna tell us everything you know because you won't be able to resist. They they shoot him up, they give him too much, and he passes out. Okay, one, didn't see that coming. No. Uh I'll I'll be honest. Uh two, try again later? Right. Is it like a, a you can only have it once kind of thing? Like I, I don't know. Or maybe it's like they were threatening lawsuits, he's, like he's immune now. You know? <laughs> he's immune now, yeah. I I mean, listen. Maybe they were worried because they were like, we full on almost OD'd this dude. He could, he could, regardless of being the bad guy here, he could sue us perhaps. I don't want to touch this guy with sodium pentothal again. I mean, maybe that's what happened. Oh, but it's just like if this person was the, you know, so many lives mm -hmm. taken. Yeah. Like, man, roll that dice. I mean, you say that unless it's you being questioned and you're uninvolved. You know, I mean, that's you just have to think from that regard. Look, if, if I'm being questions and I didn't do it, you know, you're you're going to open up and say I didn't do it. Right. You're going to you're going to have some alibis. You're going to you know, this guy's not opening up is, is the thing. I'd be like, look, you know, I was recording this video with these nine people and then I did this live stream. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, that's <laughs> that's the thing about you and me for the listeners at home. We we uh, we do more than this podcast. We do all sorts of recordings and videos and whatnot. Plays with, and yeah live action content uh check out achievement hunter but yeah um you know we got we got alibis for days just happening not these folk yeah man it's, like how much weight can you actually put into the truth serum because you'd have to think that some people would get it and then i have no idea what the science is behind this but like how do you know like they get it but just because it's like messing with their system and they're you mm. know, chemically imbalanced that they're not just gonna say yes to everything or that's a good question right or be in this weird mindset where it's like oh yeah it'd be pretty funny to confess to that 
I'd right. But like, why not? Like, it's it's hard to know. You know, I think it's all anecdotal. I think it's just based on a lot of tests. I don't know. I don't know if this is still prominently used today. I know it 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 certainly is in some ways, but I don't know much about that. But that's a good question. And actually, it comes back to Tillman Johnson, who was the Miller County Chief Deputy at the time, and said, "Listen, this this never should have happened. Obviously, the passing out should have never happened, but." To, to quote Johnson in 1996, many decades later, he said, quote, I think that if we had just kept him here in Texarkana uh, and kept questioning him, we would have been able to get the truth out of him eventually. We didn't need to go, basically saying, we didn't need to go take him to Little Rock and stick him with this stuff. All that did was make this a lot more difficult in the end because of that mistake uh, to get anything out of them. And, and this is where the marriage, right, where that recent marriage comes into play because it now needs to go to the court of law, but Peggy over here is refusing to testify in court because she couldn't be compelled to do so under law. She married UL just hours before she had been taken into custody by police. And I know this is at least under Arkansas law. This I, I've heard of this before, so it might be more broadly applicable here, but being a bride, especially a recent bride here, uh, but just being a, a spouse to someone else, I should say, you can't be compelled to testify against your other spouse. So in this case, it's almost like they got married with the intent of recusing her from the case so she couldn't testify against him. Yeah, using that loophole. Right, and that's where I'm like, is there some sort of pressure being applied to her to either get married, to stop talking about the case, to stop trying to throw him under the bus when they were both involved? Or, you know, that's that's my own kind of conjecture going on here because she went from like, here's everything I know, but also like, I'm kind of not involved. How would you know like some of these details? Why would you stay in a car for an hour? How There's some details that you had about like the, the book being thrown into the bushes you would have had to be there. You would have to be at the site. So yep. yes, it's clear that some of her story is definitely not lining up. I think she's definitely a little bit more involved than she wants to say. And that's probably whatever's happening there. That's probably the real crux of why she's no longer wanting to testify against her uh, her now husband. Uh... And and this this is where I, I say the foot the other foot drops lightly because ultimately uh, it is because of her refusal to testify against her husband that prosecutors decided against pursuing the case. And I'm like, come on, he's only technically not convicted. You know, like, how do you know some of these details? Okay, how do you have such a strong story from a loved one placing at least the husband at the scene of the crime. But it doesn't matter. He was not technically convicted of murder here, but he was given an extraordinarily long term, you know, for the car theft and the forgery. So he did go away. Christian, I'm not sure exactly how long he went away, if it was for life or whatnot. He was given life in prison for his auto thefts in 1947, but he was released in 1973. Dang, how do you get life and then released? Yeah, it says there was a proceeding which found that a prior conviction in 1941 was void because when he had not been represented by a legal counsel. Interesting. So he didn't have legal defense. Man, there's some weird loopholes. So, yep. yep. <laughs> and, and a last note here regarding these suspects. Uh, it's worth noting that author James Presley, who wrote the book The Phantom Killer, all about this situation, they believe that UL is in fact behind all four cases. 
And, uh, and there we have the leading suspects, in my opinion, very strong uh, candidates for, you know, the folks who did this. I mean, look, this is just like when we play Among Us. And I'm like, oh, there's very strong evidence. Like, there's no way that, that person could be go from this end of the map to that end of the map. It's the same thing here. I'm just like, why am I not fully diving into this, like, head first? Right. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. Like, there are details that they knew that there's just no way it's coincidental. Right. It's frustrating, man. And yeah, I mean, on, on top of that, right, it seems like there's very little doubt that that kind of information leaked. You didn't say that it was reported in the newspaper. Uh, you even told me that, you know, the person that did discover it um, kept it to themselves or told very, a uh, very small group of people. Sure. I'm sure only the police or a small group of police officers knew about it. Yeah, I just kind of don't see how that doesn't, how it's not them. And that's that's why I say at the beginning, I, I, listen, I'm not gonna spoil suspect two here. There is some interesting evidence there that I wanna get into, but that's why I say at the beginning, like it's technically unsolved, but this is kind of, in my humble opinion, pretty dang close to like, I feel like it's them, but let's see how we feel going into suspect number two, HB Tennyson, AKA Duty. I guess I hadn't said that out loud until this moment, but yeah. that's quite oh. a nickname. <laughs> I held it. I held it in. I held it in. I held it You're in. You're more I mature went, than mm. I am. <laughs> uh, HB Duty Tennyson. All right. Well, let's talk about them. November 6, 1948. Now, this is about two and a half years after this spree of attacks went down. Tennyson here at the age of 18 ended his life in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Now, Tennyson's death was due to poisoning by mercury cyanide. He left a mysterious series of notes. The first note was found by the police in his dresser, and it was titled, My Final Words. He left three other notes in a strong box and one riddle telling where the confession note would be found. The confession note was found rolled up inside of a BB fountain pen, which in turn was inside of a locked box. Now, here comes the riddle. The riddle wrote, in a tube, a paper is found. It rolls on color and it is dry and sound. The head removes the tail will turn and inside is the sheet you yearn. Two Bs mean a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. Bit of a odd rhyming scheme, but it's interesting. Two Bs could, uh, in my opinion, refer to that BB fountain pen in which the, the note was found. But yeah, so we have a riddle here. Now, in, in ultimately, he confessed that he was, in fact, the phantom killer of Texarkana in 1946. He linked himself to the slaying of Betty Jo Booker, Paul Martin, Virgil Starks, and Katie Starks. The sheriff said poison was found on the cap of the pen, and he was never a suspect of the investigation at the time of the investigation. So it's interesting that they've come up now claiming that this is their act. Well, I mean, you said it was Mercury poisoning, right? Mercury cyanide poisoning? Yes. Um, did they do this? I'm assuming they inflicted this upon themselves. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going. I'm going out. Uh, so here you go, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, that's what I'm assuming. I, I can... I can see why. I mean, there's, and we'll dive a little bit more into this, but there's something to be said, you know, and, and some of the investigators are saying, well, you know, perhaps given the circumstances of their death that they might not have been in the right headspace, and therefore they might have been confessing to the crime at hand, right? And uh, whether they were in fact that person or not. There's definitely an air of that with regards to this particular suspect. So now 
when looking at this particular scene, right, uh, the police were able to pull some fingerprints to see if these fingerprints on this pen from, uh, from duty Tennyson over here would match up with some of the fingerprints pulled from Martin's car from earlier. Ultimately, these were all inconclusive. Family and friends did in fact say that they found it hard to believe that Duty had anything to do with these murders, just knowing who they were. But it is worth noting, Duty played the trombone in Texarkana, Arkansas High School Band, which is the same band that Betty Jo Booker was also a member of. So there is some relation here. There is some connective tissue, perhaps. Um, about to say, I was like, are mm -hmm. we talking about, was it Betty Jo Booker? Yes, yeah, uh, like, the saxophone mm, player. Yep, the saxophone player. Uh, yep. Interesting. I believe she was 15 give or take at the time and and uh this was two and a half years prior to Tennyson being 18 so yeah this this definitely puts them in a similar age group in the same band you know yeah I need more though I do need more I I agree now when it comes to duty and this particular situation, Mr. Tennyson, his father, thinks that his boy was actually mentally ill when he wrote the notes, that he was unwell and not in his right headspace. Now, this is his own father's conjecture, knowing his own son and knowing his history and, and given the whole circumstance of him taking his own life, though his father could not recall where his son was at the time of the phantom killing. So, you know, you have the family saying basically, I don't know if he's capable of this. I don't believe that, you know, all of that. But at the same time, you do have a little bit of connective tissue here between some of the um, victims, as well as the fact that he doesn't really have an alibi during this time window. I mean, here's the, here's the thing, the, the, the family being like, nah, I can't be hit, but that means nothing. It does mean nothing, yeah. They're, they're really, it really doesn't. Like, the number of times you, it's someone close to you that you never suspected, like, mm -hmm. that's pretty common, um, unfortunately. Yeah. It sucks, you know, but it's true. Yeah. For me, that just goes, that tidbit of information goes right out the window. And very important, but it goes right out sure. the window. I'm just like, ah, okay. Right, so. as humans, we consider that, right? You, you, you know, who knows that person better, you say. But yeah. sometimes you just don't know a person. It's, it's really hard to say, and it's really unfortunate, you know, regardless uh, how this person met their end. But another fact that's worth mentioning here is um, on November 7th of 1948, that's the next day after Duty Tennyson ended his own life, Mrs. Bessie Brown, uh, mother of Betty Jo Booker, called Mrs. Tennyson to offer sympathy and to assure her that she felt the young man, her son, had nothing to do with the death of her daughter. Now, it's, it's hard to say, you know, if this is again, more on the empathetic side and less on the factual evidential side, but it, you know, it, it, it's interesting, right? You know, you have a, a victim's mother reaching out to a potential suspect's mother saying, ah, I don't know, I'm with you guys. Mm. To me, that's something that I would say is uncommon because if you're a parent, right? Obviously you don't want to see your child die before you. It's supposed to be the other way around. That being said, most parents would want answers, would want justice to be served. So to call up this person that's confessing to it mm -hmm. and then be like, no, it's not them. It's just, that's new. Exactly. That's, that, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, usually be like, that officers you know that was the person they confessed like what else do you need right yeah i don't know it's typical right for better or worse that um that they would want a resolution that they would yeah. want a concrete answer again right or wrong for the sake of you know closure closure exactly but the last piece here regarding tennyson comes from one of tennyson's good friends james freeman 
Now, James Freeman came forward and made a statement in which he said that he was actually with Tennyson on the night Virgil Starks was fatally shot. That's that fourth attack that came through the, uh, the closed window, right? Saying, essentially, that's his alibi. He is not involved. And we know from some evidence and from some investigation that uh, the fourth and third attack are, in fact, combined. The last thing that still, in my opinion, and I think on, in the minds of authorities, that keeps Tennyson here on the table is that there aren't really any particular lead suspects for the first two incidents, Hollis Larry and the Griffin Moore incidents. And so there is still just enough room for doubt to say, well, perhaps these four attacks weren't all together. Perhaps Tennyson was the first two attacks. And then perhaps, again, just saying perhaps again, that the Swinneys were involved with the third and fourth attacks. There, there's room enough, legally speaking, yeah. uh, uh, room for doubt there. But ultimately, you know, this is where the two suspects and the investigation comes to a close. You know, it's been 75 years and this case remains unsolved. It's a wild case, really. And I think just like many other mysteries at hand, it's, it's uh, obfuscated by the surrounding events. Thankfully, in this instance, it's not due to a lack of trying or low quality efforts on the authorities' side. It does seem that they pursued as much as was available to them, but rather that, you know, this kind of got hidden amongst the ongoing criminal activities in the area at the time. And the fact that the police were so stretched thin trying to chase down all of these different crimes. And then also the fact that whoever did this bolted, that they just kind of cut and, and ran after yeah. their, that fourth attack. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. But in my personal opinion, I feel like I can't get away from the fact that Peggy was pinning the story down with details that otherwise she shouldn't have known. In my again, in my opinion, it feels like there could have been something going on behind the scenes where whether, you know, the husband pressured them to get married so they couldn't testify, whether the husband, you know, maybe she was trying to say, okay, maybe I can get out of this. I'll say it was my boyfriend. I'll remove myself from the evidence. And then he's like, oh, I'm, yep, throw him under the bus. Yeah. Or he's like, I'm going to pull you in with me. So now you don't want to testify. So that way we can both get away from this. I don't, I don't know. Ultimately, the fact that he served for uh, some of his other criminal behavior does offer some ease of mind, but yeah, the yeah. fact that he was released a few decades later, the fact that Peggy, who, in, again, I have to say it, in my opinion, must have been at the scene of the crime rather than sitting waiting in the car for an hour just due to some of the knowledge she had. Yeah. Doesn't seem like she had any justice having been directly involved, but right. But it does seem like that's the solve to me. I don't know. That's my conjecture here. How do you feel? Uh, I completely agree. I mean, you could say like she wanted to get married because her husband was gonna get locked away or something like that or oh man it just that's i, I feel so open and shut to me yeah and the second suspect very interesting there were some very interesting tidbits there just wasn't enough for me especially to outweigh something that was so strong on the first end yeah it's a it's a wild case but i you know honestly uh listeners at home task force members i'd love to get your your feelings on this particular case because i think it is one of the closer to resolved cases that we've had uh, again going back to the zodiac killer i think that we got very close to that as well but it all comes down to a couple loose ends a couple of awkward pieces of evidence that contradicts the fact that you can't really just uh arrest people willy-nilly you have to really prove things i think that's what gives it the technical label of 
uh, unsolved, right? That's why it hasn't yeah. really had closure. Yeah. But but yeah, hit us up on Twitter at RedWebPod. You can also uh, let us know your thoughts of the podcast in general by giving us a five-star review. If you think we are up to the task or if we are up to that standard there on uh, iTunes or just letting people know about this podcast and discussing yeah. it with your friends. And shout out to everyone that's been uh, taking pictures uh, with the new Red Web merch. I've been tagging us in those photos. Hell yeah. Uh, looks awesome. We got the task force is, is global now at this point. We got so many members. What have we started? <laughs> <laughs> it all started with a joke. <laughs> it all started with uh, the man in the chair. Me, obviously. <laughs> no. uh, and then our field agent, Fredo. Yeah, well. Uh, Braveheart. Uh, look, the number of times you're going to be like, there's our field agent right over there. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to uh, Alfredo I Diaz in the field. Alfredo. Gone. Just crickets. <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> the camera looking at a field. Uh, <laughs> oh, I like that. All right. Well, that concludes, I guess, as much as you can conclude an unsolved mystery. That concludes the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Um, but with that said, we will see you all here next week on Monday again for another mystery. Bye, everybody. Bye.